This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of December 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Why the state of Texas is preparing for the possibility of kicking hundreds of thousands of children off health insurance. You actually even talked to me a few months ago and... You could see I wasn't quite as nervous as I am today. A celebration of the 40th anniversary of Austin's largest indoor venue before its inevitable destruction. We don't think about that too much. We just, uh, we just continue on. And what's the deal with that giant metal flower in Patterson Park? I would think about it every day on my drive. I wanted to know why is it opening, why is it closing? Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. No matter where your daredevils go, or what they get into, you can breathe easier. Because they may qualify for free or low-cost health insurance through Medicaid and CHIP. That's a public service announcement produced by the federal government this summer that's trying to increase awareness about the Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP. It's mostly run by the state, but mostly paid for by the federal government. The feds were actively trying to encourage families who are eligible to enroll their kids with that advertisement. It appeared in English and Spanish. But now it's getting down to the wire for CHIP in Texas. Congress has so far failed to reauthorize funding for the program, and Texas is running out of money. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports that means state officials are preparing for the possibility of shutting down the program For the first time, there are about 450,000 Texas kids who get their health insurance through CHIP. Amy Ellis's eight year old daughter is one of them. She's been on CHIP since um, birth, so for her entire eight years. Ellis is an elementary teacher for a Montessori school. Her husband works in maintenance at a local hotel. They live in Alpine in far west Texas. Alpine is three hours from the closest city. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. We have a population of under 10,000. Ellis says her family also isn't bringing in a lot of money. So CHIP has been really important to them throughout their child's life. It means that when we take her to get her vaccinations and her yearly checkup, we don't have to try to find a way to pay for that. We know that that's covered. And when she has an emergency, we don't. We're not in fear that we're going to lose our house because we need to take her to the doctor. But Ellis says she also relies on CHIP to cover treatment for her daughter's asthma and allergies, which she says require expensive ongoing medical care. The allergy serum alone is $1,000 a pop. Ellis says she has a lot to lose and few options if CHIP goes away. And increasingly, that's looking like a situation that might actually happen. I've been talking to Laura Garakardis with the Children's Defense Fund about this for a while now. You know, every day it's more and more uh, alarming. You actually even talked to me a few months ago and you could see I wasn't quite as nervous as I am Today, Garakardis is nervous because a couple of things are happening right now. One, because of Hurricane Harvey, money for CHIP is running out sooner than anyone expected. What we know right now is that we have some money to go into February, but not enough to finish the month of February. That means the state would need to close the program down in the month before that. State health officials say they're looking at an end date of January 31st. And 30 days before that is when the other thing that makes Garakardis nervous happens. 
Um, now we're in a situation where um, families in Texas may start getting letters starting December 22nd that um, their children's coverage on CHIP um, will end in the next 30 days unless... Unless Congress renews funding for CHIP very soon. Texas health officials have asked the feds to give them enough money to get CHIP through February. That way they don't have to send letters to families a few days before Christmas. But if none of that happens, Texas doesn't have a lot of options. State lawmakers wrote into Texas's CHIP law that without federal funding, the state won't continue the program. Garrett Cardis says reauthorization needs to happen. The complications of not doing so um, are potentially having to shuttle families between CHIP and being uninsured or employer coverage or the marketplace, none of which um, are is affordable for families or have the coverage that children really need. CHIP was set up specifically for children in middle to lower income families who are not poor enough for Medicaid, but don't make enough to afford private insurance. And for Amy Ellis back in Alpine, adding her daughter to the Affordable Care Act marketplace plan she and her husband have would cost three to four hundred dollars more a month. She says that's just not possible for her. There's not a lot of fat to trim in our budget. We pay a mortgage. We we pay our car insurance, our home insurance, our taxes. Um, we go to school. We go to work. We go home. We buy groceries. We're, we don't have cable. We don't have frills. We don't purchase new cars. So it, we don't really have a place that we can take this money from. There's not anything we, can, we can't stop eating. Ellis says she's angry this is even a position that families across the state are dealing with. Laura Garricardis says she's worried that a lot of families aren't even aware these letters notifying people their kids' coverage could be ending might be coming in a matter of weeks. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Headquarters of the state's health agency is dealing with a health issue of its own, a rat infestation. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission headquarters is on Lamar Boulevard near the Triangle, and this was all uncovered by the Texas Tribune's Edgar Walters. Hi, Edgar. Hey there. So how many rats are we talking about in the Brown Heatley building? You know, I called a whole bunch of people and no one would give me an exact number, but uh, the figure that the agency is going with is, quote, several hundred rats in their building. And what does this infestation look like? You examined emails from state employees discussing this among themselves. What's the infestation like? The words you hear a lot are disgust and annoyance. But what it looks like is traps laid out in the hallways. There are often, I think, dead rats that state employees will walk by. They had shared some photos with me of rats that had been caught in the traps. Also, for a few unlucky state employees, they detailed in their emails a couple of live rat sightings. So... It's a lot of pests in the building. Is this much different than what you would see in any large facility or large building? 
You know, I think it's actually pretty bad. So the most recent sort of state government rat infestation that drew a lot of headlines was a couple years ago when the uh, School for the Deaf had a big rat problem. But when I spoke with the Facilities Commission, they described the current health and human services infestation as uh, sizably larger. In addition to the size of the infestation, it's just sort of the irony of it all when you have your health department, which could be giving citations to like hospitals and um, nursing homes if they were full of pests. Uh, for them to actually, the regulators to have the infestation on their own premises, I think that irony is not lost on the state employees who work there. How much of this is a symptom of the state not spending enough on its facilities? That is a theme we heard over and over again. You know, in Texas, state lawmakers don't tend to fully fund state agencies at the levels that they ask for. Um, There are huge deferred maintenance costs at state buildings all over. And so, yeah, that is something that we heard basically, you know, maybe if the state had uh, ponied up some money to fix various structural problems at these buildings, maybe there wouldn't be as big of an infestation now. So how are they dealing with this and how much money are they spending to fight this rat infestation at the uh, Texas Health and Human Services Commission headquarters on Lamar Boulevard? Well, you can tell state employees uh, really got fed up with the problem when they decided to actually spend $60,000 out of their own budget to take care of the problem. There's actually a state agency responsible for kind of like taking care of these sorts of buildings. Um, the Facilities Commission actually employs their own sort of pest exterminator, but the Health and Human Services Commission has now contracted with Orkin. Uh, so you might see some pest control vans if you're driving up North Lamar because they're yeah, spending 60000 out of their own pocket to try to get rid of these critters. Is there any health risk at all to the employees in the building? I mean, the state issued a warning about flea-borne typhus activity in Texas, and rats are among the primary carriers of the disease. I don't know if that's a concern in this instance, but any health risk at all for the workers in this building on Lamar Boulevard with the rat infestation? Um, You know, I think speaking to the state employees, people aren't that concerned necessarily about getting sick by going to work. I don't want to sound alarmist, but um, there's definitely, yeah, there's a reason why you wouldn't want, say, a hospital or a nursing home full of rats, uh, which is that they can be disease vectors. And yeah, it is considered unsanitary. So, you know, my heart goes out to the uh, hardworking bureaucrats on North Lamar who might have these crawling around their office. Edgar Walters is a reporter with the Texas Tribune, who's done some reporting on the Texas Health and Human Services Commission headquarters on Lamar Boulevard near the Triangle, dealing with a rat infestation. You can read his story at texastribune.org. Great talking to you, Edgar. Thank you. Thank you. There's a new neighborhood being built in Northeast Austin. That's not usually news in a rapidly growing city, but this one is a little bit different. In this neighborhood, none of the homeowners will own the land underneath their houses. KUT's Audrey McGlinchey explains why. 13 miles north of downtown Austin, a woman named Carrie yells before nailing the wood frame of a new home to its concrete foundation. Other Habitat for Humanity volunteers carry plumbing parts. Is that a shower? Whoa, that's so cool. It's Laura Soto's shower. 
Today is a wall raising um, for my home. The whole thing's kind of overwhelmed her. So, uh, it's a big deal. This will be Soto's first time owning a home. I've lived in Austin uh, all my life with a single family income with children, roughly making about 39000 a year. The median home value in Austin is $305,000. Soto's home and the ones around it, the ones in this neighborhood, they'll go for $150,000. Wait, but how? That's a great question. Eliza Platz-Mills is a law professor at UT. What makes these 67 homes affordable is that they're part of what's called a community land trust. This idea has been around a while in other parts of the country, but it just came to Texas in 2012. And this neighborhood will be the largest land trust in the state. Instead of your typical situation where the homeowner would come in and buy both the home and the land underneath the home, here the homeowner comes in and buys the home but they don't buy the land. A nonprofit, in this case Habitat, owns the land, and the homeowner... They just borrow the land. They rent the land. Soda will rent the land her house sits on for $25 a month. She'll pay taxes on the house and that small land fee. Ideally, the home will stay affordable for a while. The homeowners can't turn around and sell the home to whoever they want at whatever price they want. There are some rules... Rule number one, a community land trust can only be sold to someone of a certain income. For a family of four, Habitat's eliminating that to an income of $50,000 a year or less. Rule number two, they can only sell the home at specific prices that go up a little bit every year. The value of Soto's home will rise by only 1.5% each year. The downside? When she decides to sell, she likely won't see the return on investment that we hear about in Austin today. Those stories of someone buying a home for $30,000 in the 70s and then selling it for half a million today. But for now, that doesn't concern Soto. She's thinking color palettes. The trim will be the rich white, um, the outside of the house will be a darker gray and the door will be a lighter gray and there will be an accent wall of um, a grayish blue color. Soto and two of her three kids will move into the home early next year. Audrey McGlynn, she, KUT News. Three coal power plants in Texas will close early next year. Environmentalists say that's good news. People who work at the plants not so happy about it. But if you live in Austin, what does it mean for your electric bill? KUT's Mose Bouchel reports. It means you could pay a little more for electricity next summer, or maybe not. That was basically the message Austin's publicly owned electric company delivered this month to a city oversight committee. Austin Energy's Erica Bierschbach said after the plant closures were announced, wholesale electricity contracts in Texas for next August shot up by 20%. To put it plainly, if Austin wanted to buy electricity ahead of time for next summer, it suddenly had to pay much more. Prices rise because of uncertainty. Less available electricity when it's needed, most in the summertime, adds to that uncertainty. But there's a catch. Those higher prices might not actually be bad for Austin ratepayers. That's because Austin Energy doesn't just buy electricity, it also sells it. So higher prices might be good for the utility, and by extension its owners, the ratepayers, if Austin is skillful and lucky in buying low and selling high. Our team is very good at what we do. And here's another wrinkle. Even if Austin Energy wanted to pass higher electricity costs to its ratepayers, it might not be able to. That's because it would try to do that by increasing a fee on your bill 
called the Power Supply Adjustment Fee. Essentially, that fee is covering the difference between what they're selling energy for on the market and what they're buying energy for. That's Kaiba White with Public Citizen. It's a group that's pushed Austin Energy to use more renewable power. She says if the utility wanted to increase that fee, it would have to get city council approval. And even if it got approval, it couldn't increase the fee by very much. Would still be uh, restricted by the 2% per year uh, affordability goal that Austin Energy is uh, working under, and that's by council direction. Finally, none of this might matter. In her presentation, Austin Energy's Bierschbach said more electricity, much of it renewable, will become available by next summer. So that could simply replace the electricity lost in the plant closures. In a follow-up email, Austin Energy told KUT that 20% price hike it presented to the committee was temporary. The utility doesn't expect electricity prices to be that much higher next year. Mose Bouchel, KUT News. The Frank Irwin Center opened this week in 1977. And as KUT's Jimmy Moss reports, the building is entering its twilight years and it's doing its best not to show its age. The Frank Irwin Center, or Special Events Center as it was originally christened, opened its doors to the public for the first time 40 years ago tonight for a couple of basketball games. The Texas women's team started the night with a win against an outmatched Temple Junior College. Then the men's team got in the act with a big win over arch-rival Oklahoma. The Irwin Center was another sign of the city's growth. It was designed by B.W. Crane and Ralph Anderson, best known for helping design the Astrodome and the Houston Post building. In addition to basketball, the city then had a large event space for some of the big touring acts of the time, like Earth, Wind & Fire, Bob Dylan. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's only natural that we would play at the anniversary wall. And Lawrence Welk. His show was the first concert at the center in March of 1978, and also the first sellout. But they were still working out the kinks. Escalators not working, particularly when you're doing a Lawrence Welk show, when you consider the... uh, the type of crowd, so you have to get people into their seats and up to different levels. Jimmy Earl is director of the Irwin Center. The impossible we do right away, but you know some of the other things may take a little time. He should know he's been there for most of it. I've been here two different tours. I was the original events manager here from uh, when the building opened on November 29th, uh, 1977, and. Um, I was the events manager here for 10 years from 77 to 87. Then I had a hiatus where I thought I wanted to be a convention center manager, so I managed a convention center in Fort Worth for four years. And I've been back in Austin since 1990. Renamed in 1980 after UT Regent Frank Irwin, the building has churned out 40 years of basketball games, concerts, monster truck shows, circuses, and memories. More than 30 million people have walked through the doors for a variety of acts. The largest crowd ever at the Irwin Center was for a John Denver concert in 1978. The highest grossing show was Paul McCartney's four years ago. George Strait has performed there the most at 13 shows. It has hosted a Davis Cup semifinal in tennis in 2011, arena football in the aughts, professional wrestling since the 80s, even Johnny Cash. And I think about it now and then. 
Every time I try and every time I win. And if I ever have another boy, I'm going to name him Austin. Austin. But soon enough, all that fun will end. Good night, y'all. God bless you. You see, the ground the Irwin Center has stood on since 1977 is slated to be part of the UT Medical School that has been built to this point around the iconic drum-shaped building. There is no timeline right now, but UT President Greg Fenvis said in April that current plans are to build a new arena across Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard near the football stadium and build part of the med school on the Irwin Center lot. That could happen in the next five to seven years. Staff are looking into its cost and feasibility. But Jimmy Earl isn't thinking about the end. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that have been put into this um, building by a lot of people. So um, uh, it will be, I'm sure it'll be an emotional time. Um, we don't think about that too much. We just, uh, we just continue on. Uh, we know that the only constant in life is change. And the work continues. This month alone, it will host members of the Grateful Dead, Lady Gaga, and another tour of Disney on Ice. Jimmy Moss, KET News. Boys, how about a little happy birthday song for her? There's actually another venue in Austin that could go away, not as historic as the Irwin Center, but still noteworthy, a live music venue on 6th Street called The Parish, up for auction on eBay right now, actually, so I called the owner this week on his cell phone. Doug Guller, CEO, ATX Brands. So uh, why are you selling The Parish? You know, it was, uh, it was a hard decision to make, and, you know, after talking it over with the team in the beginning of... 2017, we we decided that we wanted to focus solely on the restaurant business. Uh, sorry, I'm walking up a hill, so I'm out of breath. You know, we sold uh, Schrader Hall uh, back in April and scoot in in July, and this is kind of the last but not least on the, on the list. So why are you divesting of your sort of nightlife music venue properties? Just to focus more, to be honest, uh, kind of the, I don't know if it's uh, because I'm getting older or, or what, but uh, really thought that we could do more with our uh, a few of our restaurant properties. And uh, it just takes a lot of time and energy to focus across business lines. And we thought that uh, uh, all venues would perhaps be in better hands if we could find the right buyers. And so what people will be purchasing is the audiovisual equipment, the name, and then the lease? Yeah, really, really turnkey. Uh, they even have the ability to, uh, to renew the TABC license. So all furniture, fixtures, equipment, intellectual property, you name it. Uh, everything that's related to the parish except real estate. So how do you feel about saying goodbye to this property after all these years then? You know, uh, I don't know. It's, um, it's been associated with our company and me uh, almost since we started. So I don't know what the feeling will be if there's a winning bid. It was tough to let 
Scoot Ingo. You know, I'm still a, a small owner in that, so I guess it's not 100% gone, meaning out of ownership. But, you know, it's it's tough to lose something that you've spent so much time and energy in. But like everything, there's kind of a cycle, a life cycle, and perhaps mine is up with the parish. And as long as it gets to continue and flourish, I think I'll be happy. Doug, thanks so much for your time and for talking to me about this. You got it. For more analysis on the sale and what it means, we have Chad Swiatecki with our reporting partner, the Austin Monitor, and Chad covers the music business in Austin. Hi, Chad. Hello there. You're joining us from an airport today. Which one? Uh, Detroit Metro. Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time. You have been in Austin for, I guess, nearly a decade. How would you describe the parish as a venue? I think kind of the the conventional wisdom about the parish is it's always been sort of a tweener, a little bit of an underperformer relative to what it has to offer or its potential. It's kind of like that kid that you graduated with in high school. Like, man, if they could just get it together, they would be awesome. Um, And that's that's what I've always thought about the parish. It's one of the best sounding rooms for years and years, and I think still it's regarded as having the best audio quality, you know, sound experience for shows in the in the city and it's always been a very inviting and kind of comfortable uh setting as well it's beautiful it's got those wood floors brick walls good art you know great stage so it's a great setting but it just never quite lives up to its potential what are some of those obstacles that prevent it from really living up to its potential so it's an upstairs venue in the heart of uh, 6th Street. So you've got tons of other things going around it and being an upstairs venue. It's hard for people to kind of stumble upon or into the parish. Um, And so if you don't have a lot of really premier attractive shows that are drawing people in, it kind of just is easy to overlook and and get lost in the shuffle. And so it's just either actively or passively things that are keeping people out of the doors. Right, so you're saying people don't want to wade through the drunks and the tourists that crowd 6th Street necessarily to go see one band or one artist at a venue such as the Parish. You've got to really want it. And I've been to shows there a number of times, but there's always kind of the, oh, really, I've got to deal with 6th Street tonight to go see Band X. It's a little bit of a drag, but, you know, but in amongst all that, you've still had the room used for high-profile things. I mean, during South by Southwest for years, uh, NPR was hosting events out of there for like a week at a time. And, and it's, it gets booked, uh, I think, um, maybe Brooklyn Vegan or, or you know, one of the other kind of premier music blog uh, operators used it for, uh, for festival bookings for a while. So it still is well-regarded and has big shows with big acts, but it's always a little bit of a, I think seen as a little bit of a drag that, oh, we gotta, we gotta deal with 6th Street to get in there. And you think that's why ATX Brands is gonna be selling it? I mean, when you look at the monthly liquor sale totals of the parish compared to comparable rooms in, in Austin, be it you know, Empire Control Room or the Sidewinder or the Mohawk, you know, size-wise, there's a little bit of a gap there, but, you know, kind of on the same level and prestige. The the parish typically is maybe 10 to 20% of the liquor sales that those uh, other rooms have. So, I mean, it's wow. just not bringing in 
very much money. And so it's, you know, I don't know what the rent on that room is, but it can be cheap in the heart of 6th Street. So I don't know if it's a money loser, but it's definitely not a big money maker. Yeah, I doubt they would be selling it if it were r- raking in if the cash, if it were a money machine. So I want to ask you then, Chad, what does this mean in the larger picture for Austin's struggling live music scene and the challenges that particularly in the central business district that music venues have been facing trying to stay afloat? You know, we, we we're learning that once a music venue goes away, it doesn't come back. You know, music venues are, are traditionally kind of transitional businesses. They they sprout up where things are nominally affordable, and then you know gradually things pick up and rents go up, and then you've got expensive restaurants or retail or something else that goes there. And I think where the parish to go away, depending on how the sale ultimately goes, you know we're, we'd lose a real Again, an underperforming asset, but still a, a, something that I think could be a real or is a real asset for the Austin live music community. And, and I don't think anyone wants to see it go away. Chad Swiatecki is with our reporting partner, the Austin Monitor. It's great talking to you, Chad. Have a safe flight. Hey, thanks, Ethan. Have a good one. Patterson Park near the Miller development in Austin, you might notice something that sticks out. It's tucked in near the community garden and the skateboard park. A big metal sculpture that caught the eye of one KUT listener and became kind of an obsession for her. So for our AT Explained project, KUT's Matt Largy looked into it. This is a story about feelings and how you translate those feelings into something real. My joke is... Somebody says, how are you? I answer, various. <laughs> I have a lot of different things going on. Right. So it's a way of making ourselves accept the dimensionality of life. We are, after all, many feelings at once. Boredom. Amazing. Fear. Anticipation. Sadness. Surprise. Grief. Joy. Serenity. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. So tell me, what what are you seeing here? What does this thing look like? It sits on a stone kind of platform that's rainbow colored and the stones are cut into petal shapes. So you have blue and green in various shades. This is Candace Bunkley. Yellow, orange, red, violet. We're at Patterson Park, the corner of Airport Boulevard and Schiffer Avenue. We're standing in front of a giant metal flower. And the flower is probably about six feet tall when it's closed. Candace asked about this flower for our ATX plane project. And it has, I think, seven or eight petals and they're uh, furled at the top. And it kind of has a brassy color to it too. She first noticed it when it was over in Hyde Park. Where the statue was, I would see it on my way to work, on my way to the grocery store, when I was going out to a restaurant, when I was meeting friends. And the thing about this giant metal flower that really caught her eye was that sometimes the petals were open and sometimes they were closed. So the flower looked more like a sphere. It was a mystery to me. And I would think about it every day on my drive. I wanted to know why is it opening? Why is it closing? So that's what we're going to find out. And then who is opening and closing it? I don't know a whole lot about art, but lucky for me, there's a big clue to this mystery on a leaf-shaped piece of metal nearby. It'll tell you the installation is called Dance of the Cosmos, and it tells you exactly who can answer most any other question about it. Hello, I'm Jennifer Chenoweth. Jennifer is the artist who created the giant flower. The whole installation was moved from its temporary home in Hyde Park over to Patterson Park earlier this year. 
So why the flower? I saw a picture in a book of a Tibetan lotus mandala. And you open it, there are deities, and it's a way to describe their spiritual universe. She says the whole thing grew out of a sort of frustration about all the negative things in the world. Violence, disasters, tragedy. I just tended to get really frustrated. Like, I don't, how do we accept that? It's not acceptable. (laughs) So this was a way for me to, like, kind of get that in my gut and to understand that there really is beauty in all of it, even if there's horror in some of it. She wanted to make something that reflected the spectrum of emotions, the good and the bad, the dark and the light. So it's a way to uh, embrace an idea that your life is actually a whole flower of experience. But even in a whole flower of experience, sometimes we're open and sometimes we're closed. That idea, that whole flower of experience, it goes back to a psychologist named Robert Plutchik. So I'm really interested in a psychological theory of emotional wholeness created by Robert Plutchik. And he drew a diagram using words about how your emotions are connected and relational. To really get this part, you've got to know a little bit more about Robert Plutchik and his theory of emotion. So there are a lot of theories of emotion out there. And theories of emotion try to do two things. This is Art Markman. He's a psychologist at UT. One is to figure out where the emotions come from. And then the other is to try to characterize the kinds of emotions that humans experience. And what Plutchik did was he came up with a new way to visualize these emotions. What he did was to create a cone where the elements on the cone are the different emotions you experience, and then the higher up you go, the more intense the emotions are. This cone diagrammed our emotions using color coding. It was the inspiration for the multicolored base for Dance of the Cosmos. And so the interesting thing that he did was then to find opposing pairs of emotions. Great. Ecstasy. Interest. Distraction. Sadness. Joy. And so those sit on opposite sides of the cone, and when you flatten that cone out, it becomes a flower. A whole flower of experience. Sound familiar? I mean, in a lot of ways, this seems like really simple. (laughs) Well, you know, the human emotional system isn't necessarily that complex. In fact, there's a kind of beauty in its simplicity. Now that we know what it means, Jennifer's back at the sculpture showing me how the thing works. Um, We have it set on a timer for evening and morning so that it opens in the morning as some flowers do and closes at night. The flower is actually electrical. It's powered by a solar panel on a pole off to the side. Sun comes up, the flower opens. Over about 20 seconds. Sun goes down, the flower closes. So it actually moves itself. No human intervention needed. I wanted Candace to hear all of this for herself, why it opens and closes, what it means, how it does it. So I asked her to come to Patterson Park to meet Jennifer. I know. The question asker and the person who can answer the question. This is so exciting. Okay, so I wanted to know why you open the petals of the flower and when you would do it, or like why you would do it. The sculpture is a visualization of emotional wholeness and acceptance based on a psychologist's theory. So even though all of this is around us all the time, sometimes we're open, sometimes we're closed. And it's also a reflection of the processes and cycles in nature, that things open, they close, we are born, we die. It's all of it all at once. 
Also, it's kind of exciting to watch it. When it opens, it's like really uplifting and joyous. And then when it closes, it's just like, oh, like, like it really is closure. It's beautiful. I totally get what you mean by like kind of the spirit behind it. Cause some days I would just be like my best self and be driving down the road and I'd be like, the flowers open. Like, <laughs> yes, it reflects my day. For a while I was like, okay, maybe it's after it rains, they open it and then they clean it. And then I was like, okay, if it's days over hundred degrees, it's going to be open today. Like it was like my commute home thing to look for. And I miss seeing it on my drive. Thanks for your interest. I really appreciate it. It's really fun to make art for people. And so you don't always get to meet the people. So thank you, I really appreciate it. We see public art all over Austin, but mostly we don't know what it actually means. So maybe next time you see this giant metal flower, it'll make you feel something new. Fear. Fear. Boredom. Boredom. Admiration. Joy. Serenity. Matt Largy, KUT News. That is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of December 2017. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org. Email any questions or comments to nathan at kut.org, or you can ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by REC. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. And then,